Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss the big stories this week is my colleague, Adam Payne. I'm delighted to say we're joined by the former Work and Pension Secretary, Chloe Smith. So, Adam, we'll start with you just go through what's been happening this week. I think it's kind of been kind of overshadowed, really, by a big row over the appointment and an eventual resignation of Gavin Williamson and, and kind of questions over the Prime Minister's judgment, really, in, in not just appointing Williamson, but also in dealing with these allegations that we've seen. Um, and I think it's kind of brought together lots of wider conversations, really, about how whipping works and how people <laughs> talk to each other in, in Westminster. We'll, we'll come on to uh, later as well. And also, um, there's been some big news in, in Northern Ireland that you've been covering as well. So what have been kind of your takeaways this week so far? Well, so taking it chronologically, I guess. Well, when you were sat here last week, Alan, the conversation was about another individual. It was about Suella Braveman, the Home Secretary. A week on, we're talking about another individual. However, this one has actually left government, uh, Gavin Williamson. And in the end, Gavin Williamson resigned from his rather nebulous role in the cabinet office. Oh, no, he was in charge um, of the Geospatial Commission. <laughs> of course, and, and the Great Campaign. Yes. Um, but he, he resigned from his position saying that the allegations regarding his conduct over the last few years um, in various roles in, in government were distracting from Rishi Sunak's new premiership. And th- there were two allegations in, in particular. Firstly, well, the first isn't really an allegation. We, we've seen the hard evidence of yeah. messages he sent to Wendy Morton a few weeks ago when she was the chief whip. Um, of course, that's a role that he's done before. And secondly, there was a report in The Guardian by Pippa Crea, um, uh, reporting allegations about pretty awful things he allegedly said to a civil servant when he was Defence Secretary. And these two separate um, allegations, these claims, uh, did lead to formal processes, formal investigations. And by that point, when was it? Was it on Tuesday night? Tuesday night that um, Gavin Williamson tweeted his letter of um, resignation. And what was interesting, and I guess this leads on to conversations about Rishi Sunak's political judgment, which is something that's under the political spotlight at the moment. Um, in his response to Williamson, he he said he was very sad to lose him, didn't he? Mm. And, and to lose his loyalty. And, and the tone of that letter raised to my brows, I think, given the, the nature of the nature of the conduct that Williamson is um, alleged to have um, done. And then just touching quickly on Northern Ireland, um, what, what's happened, I mean, Northern Ireland is, is never the sexiest issue in politics, but it's absolutely an important one. Uh, the Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, announced yesterday in the House of Commons that the plan the government did have to hold a fresh election in Northern Ireland, because, of course, Northern Ireland has been without a functioning government since February. Yeah. That's the power sharing D- executive. Exactly. That, that's due it. to the DUP's refusal to form a government over their opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the plan was to hold an election before Christmas, in the run-up to Christmas. Essentially, everyone in Northern Ireland thought that was a terrible idea and had been urging Downing Street to think again. So Downing Street has thought again. And Heaton Harris announced yesterday that that deadline for holding election has been pushed back initially six weeks, which means that when you factor in the length of the election period, blah, 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 we're looking at an election happening in Northern Ireland in early March. However, if by then the government feels the conditions aren't there for 
an election, i.e. the DUP still aren't going to play ball, then they have the power, they will have the power to action another six-week extension, which means we're looking at an election in Northern Ireland on April 13th. Now, why is that date significant? It's significant because I believe it's three days after the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. So clearly that's going to be a momentous moment in the calendar. President Biden is expected to be visiting Northern Ireland at the time. So the government really, reading between the lines, is banking on finally getting a deal with the EU on the protocol before spring 2023. Yeah, they don't want to go past that date where they without exactly. having one. Um, just going back to where we are, bringing uh, um, Chloe in, obviously, I just wonder what you'd made of the, the Williamson round. Did you, do you think it was right that he resigned uh, on Tuesday? I think it's extremely disappointing. It, it's, uh, um, it's not, I don't think, the kind of... Um, standards that we would want to demonstrate in politics or that people would want to work within in a in a professional workplace mm. um so i think it's right that he's gone and i also think it's a, a really good opportunity for the uh prime minister for, for rishi to be able to do um rightly what what he set out uh that, that he's looking for the standards or you know the highest standards of of professionalism and integrity and i th- and i think that would be to the benefit of of politics overall you know this is none of this is helpful uh for democracy and for the reputation of the house of commons um you know great swathes of this are a kind of throwback to sort of house of cards days aren't they and i mean that in the in the british sense not the american sense you know in other words quite a few decades ago um, and we don't need that you know i th- i think this is a really good opportunity for for rishi to you know, to to um, move us on and uh, into an age where we can demonstrate better in politics. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll circle back to the actual kind of situation around Williamson. I just wondered, you obviously entered the house, you were the baby of the house when you entered it back in 2009. What were, what yes, were your kind of yes. experiences then as, 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 a, as a young a woman in her 20s, you know, entering the House of Commons? Did you feel that it was sort of an intimidating environment? Do you think it's got better over the years? What are your kind of experiences of a lot of stuff that we're hearing about that kind of those, as you say, that kind of Francis Urquhart, dark arts kind of behaviour? Well, no no negative experiences, actually, I must say. I mean, the chief whip that I first uh, uh, you know, joined the, the parliamentary party with was uh, Patrick McLaughlin, who I've always had uh, the hugest respect for, and I think many others do as well. So I'm, I'm glad to say I had no, uh, you know, n- nothing negative to report in that sense. And indeed, I rapidly joined the, the whip's office myself. Uh, and actually, if you forgive me a little yeah. personal reflection, I mean, one of the 13 years on, you know, I'm able to say that actually, I was one of the uh, longest serving ministers, I think, um, I think I've been one of the very few left who uh, actually served in government in 2010. That's a very long span of, of record. Uh, and also on the women point, here's a little statistic that I came across recently. Um, there are on the conservative benches, there are six remaining women who were in parliament from before 2010. Uh, and that's an illustrious company from Theresa May through uh, five other colleagues uh, to me. And um, uh, and all of us uh, now sit either as uh, deputy speakers or as uh, uh, members of the Privy Council. So that's a, a very lovely club to be part of. But, you know, looking at that span of history, I think, um, I mean, I think it's been an incredibly tumultuous time in politics, obviously, um, arguably, uh, really, I think from 2016 onwards, to be fair, um, and and all of us, you know, you and me together have have you know lived through quite a lot of professionally testing times, right? You know, either as journalists or as as uh, elected politicians. And what we need are those standards, you know. Yeah, and I just wondered. Yeah, obviously, like you say, you've seen it from the other side as well. You're in the whip's office early on in your career, and then you went 
back to Whip's office, I believe, in 2017 uh, as well. You know, how did you see it from that side? Like, there's criticism of the way, perhaps, that sort of heavy-handedness. Did you did you did you notice any? Any difference in your two stints in the Whips office? Well, in actual fact, um, my 2017 stint was uh, more focused on being a Northern Ireland minister. Right. Um, I was principally a Northern Ireland minister with a with a, a small responsibility in the Whips office. So perhaps we might save that to use under the, the second item of chat. Indeed. Um, but but no, I I, I didn't have any. Uh, I know again, I have have no uh, no no personal experiences to add to the story on in terms mm. of the Whips office. Yeah. Okay. Well, just uh, one other thing on that. Like, obviously, some MPs have perhaps sought to minimise. You know some of the Williamson texts I saw George Eustace saying that actually you know it shouldn't have gone to a formal complaint that it should have just been a phone call and that sort of stuff and people saying it's been blown up out of proportion but when I speak to people outside of politics they say look there's just no way you can speak to people like that you know do you think that there's perhaps sometimes a disconnect between the rough and tumble of, of Westminster and, and actually people outside of politics do you think that you, know, you just shouldn't really speak to people in that kind of way? I think unfortunately sometimes the you know, sometimes in politics, you do you do find people who think that we're special. You know, and there's a kind of exceptionalism occasionally about about things in in Westminster. You know, we're very conscious of of working in a, a hugely historical and very privileged um, institution. And uh, sorry, when I say privileged, I mean an institution in which it's a privilege to work is is what I actually mean by that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and so and, and so sometimes it, it can be uh, tempting to think that, you know, there are different rules uh, in Westminster, but it should not be like that. You know, really what we are looking at here, I think, is a, a, a clear case of simply the standards that we would all wish to, to live and work by. And, uh, and I think, um, uh, you know, I think it's right that this particular case has, has shown what the better path is. Yeah, sure. I was gonna, just sort of reflecting on Gavin Williamson, because he played a key role in helping Theresa May and Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak yeah. get into Downing Street. He's been a pretty sort of central character to the soap opera that has been British politics over the last few years. He has this aura around him. I remember a few years ago, there were suggestions he could be, he could sort of plot his way to being prime minister. Right. Yeah, he had yeah, this yeah. kind of Machiavellian... All the stories about um, him having a, having a sword or having yeah. a, a, a pet tarantula Cronus yeah. in his office, that sort of but, stuff. But now I, you know, I'll be speaking to Tory MPs this week, and this might be partly because there are so many new Tory MPs now who were elected in 2019 due to the, you know, the nature of that victory um, three years ago, that that sort of aura might have rubbed off now mm. and that perhaps he isn't as popular and indeed as feared as he may have been yeah. a few years ago. I'm just interested, Chloe, on your reflections on sort of the Gavin Williamson phenomenon <laughs> like what, what what's your assessment of him as, as a political operator and also it, it kind of feels like now that he's left government it doesn't feel like he's going to get back in there anytime soon but perhaps oh, wouldn't it, I wouldn't, 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 a, yeah, a hostage to fortune wouldn't there, put it past but, him but Chloe, I'd be interested to hear your reflections just on Gavin Williamson his sort of role how how is he actually regarded in in the parliamentary Tory party well, I'm I'm going to be sorry to disappoint you here. I'm I'm, I'm not going to indulge in the, in personal gossip. It, the truth is, of course, actually, you know, he may have left government, but he's still a colleague and, and is still a human being. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to add add more to it, you know, here and now. Um, but I think, I mean, as as I was already saying, I I really do think, you know, that here is an opportunity to reflect actually on some behaviour that that has appears to have been uncovered and that. Um, offers a, a sort of parting of the ways. You know, let, let's let's take the correct path here because we don't need to put on display to the British people, you know, another version of of Westminster um, behaving badly. You know, we 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 we've got a job to do, and I think uh, actually most colleagues 
opinion at this stage would be to get on with that job. Yeah. Well, in terms of kind of fixing that, there's an element of this story that's been the kind of a misogyny angle, I suppose. Do you think that there is an, still an issue around misogyny in Westminster? We've we've covered stuff before on on the podcast around harassment and that sort of stuff. Do you think there is an issue? I was like, you, you might mention those Tory MPs who are, who are women, but actually, your party still less than thirty percent of its MPs are are women. Still, do you think there's more work to be done around that? And do you think your your party's maybe still got a bit of an issue around around misogyny? Is that part of the way of of improving kind of the, the standards within? Parliament. The Conservative Party does not have an issue with misogyny. The Conservative Party has had three women prime ministers yeah. where others are still lagging. <laughs> you know, allow me just to slam dunk that point while I can. Um, I think I think the truth is that um, actually politics you know, on any part of the spectrum is all the richer for having a diversity of people. And, and in fact, this you know you you gave me the opportunity to mention earlier on about being a you know a young MP at the time. I mean, I've always made this point that actually you need young people, you need old people, you need men, you need women, you absolutely need all walks of life in Parliament so that it reflects the people that we serve and 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 that will be to its mm. strength. So there's always more to do on that. And I, you know, and I th- I think the Conservative Party actually has a has a great record on that. Um, but there, there's there's much more to do to make sure that um, you know, we're we're doing that job for people, which you do by means of being able to reflect back British society. Yeah, absolutely. And Adam, we the questions around kind of how Rishi Sunak has, has dealt with it and moving on, he said he wanted to lead a government of integrity. I just wondered what you'd kind of made of how Sunak had dealt with probably his first kind of big political sort of crisis as, as prime minister. Well, I mean, I don't want to give too much work because I'm writing about this for the weekends. So I don't want to... Read don't, about it, read about it in, our, in our special uh, email on Saturday morning. I yeah, yeah, I don't want to um, sort of um, jeopardise myself. But clearly, it's not ideal for no. Rishi Sunak that in the first few weeks of his premiership, and also a premiership which was meant to be such a clean break from what's come before, a fresh start. You, t- you talked about integrity, accountability, all those very sort of positive abstract nouns. Um, for it to be not dominated, but for the Suella Braverman and the Gavin Williamson stuff to be big news stories during that time, probably the biggest news stories. Yeah. Um, because until the autumn, we've got the autumn statement next week, which I'm sure we'll touch upon in a few moments. Until that point, you know, the government hasn't really announced anything. We won't get a really clear sense of the direction we're going in in terms of tax and spend and whatnot until next week. And look, there are multiple ways of looking at it, right? So in the end, Gavin Williamson has gone. Yeah. Um, there are still questions, as you reported, Alan, last night, there are still questions in, in, in regards to what Rishi Sunak knew about those complaints, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps the tone of his letter was was strange, but... Ultimately, Gan Williamson's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Some MPs I've spoken to have said that perhaps the last two weeks have raised questions about Rishi Sunak's political judgment. Um, although he is a big beast of the Tory Party, obviously he's Prime Minister. He's still relatively new to. Yeah, I mean he he was elected what in twenty fifteen, which feels like a <laughs> a lifetime ago now, given what's happened in between. But um, he's not, you know, he's he's not a, a veteran of the House of Commons and. Speaking to Tory MPs this week, they have suggested that perhaps elements of how the Braverman and Williamson affairs have been handled indicate um, political inexperience. Yeah, a bit of naivety, maybe. Perhaps right? naivety. But ultimately, I think the 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 real big test for Sunak will come next week with yeah. the autumn statement. Yeah. There's no doubt, no doubt. And we, we, we discussed this at length um, in recent podcasts that Westminster, I think, Chloe... 
I'm, I'm sure we'll agree. Westminster just feels more calm at the moment. Uh, you know, we've said I've I'd, I'd gotten so used to Westminster being in crisis and governments falling that adjusting to this period of relative stability has actually been quite weird. Um, <laughs> but if it does feel calm now, I think next week when we get announcements on tax and spend, when we get announcements on which things are being maintained, yeah, but perhaps more pertinently, which things are being yeah. cut, when we get announcements around foreign aid, for example... Um, I think that's when we're going to, one, get a clearer sense of the direction of this government, but two, a clearer sense of where the fights are going to be, yeah. where the backbenches are going to be restless. And I think that is going to be the big test of yeah. um, Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I think Chloe kind of moving away from that kind of personality politics to actually what the government wants to be able to do. We obviously, you were working pension secretary over the summer. The big discussion at the moment is about how benefits are uprated. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. A lot of people in the party are very excised about this and want the government to make sure that they make that guarantee on benefits. Was that something that you were looking at? Was a kind of work ongoing in that before you left the department last month? Yes, this was something I, I was looking at. And of course, the actual background here is that it's a statutory review that the Secretary of State conducts of, of yep. both ben, uh, pensions and benefits in terms of operating. And that happens every autumn. So um, obviously, yes, I had you know the early stages of that work, and and uh, Mel Stride, uh, who I I wish well, will be will be finishing that, um, and I think it's already been made clear that that's going to culminate ready for the seventeenth, uh, so ready for Thursday. I mean, I, the, the clear principle that you have to go into this with is how to protect the most vulnerable. You know, that is what uh, the state pension does, and that is what the benefit system does, and so. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's an absolute kind of foundational principle. And it's certainly one that I was applying. Uh, and again, it's one that I'm, I'm glad that Mel and uh, Rishi have also uh, spoken about and, and, and emphasised. That's really important. But of course, they've actually got a very tough set of uh, decisions uh, that they need to bring together. That is but one of a very tough set of decisions. Um, I can't preempt what they will uh, decide, obviously. Um, but I think it is right that they, they try to blend that principle of supporting the most vulnerable with uh, the fiscal sustainability and the and the, the stability in the public finances that is going to be needed in order to create a, a strong economy that you know endures and and, and supports everybody. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you think it's a, a a retrievable situation? A lot of people are suggesting that you know that the party's in a very difficult position. It's miles behind Labour in some of the polls. You know, there's a big moment, I suppose, for Sunak's administration. You know, what are you kind of looking for apart from, as we touched on the stuff on benefits, what else are you kind of looking for to really kind of A, kickstart the economy and also kickstart, I guess, the Conservatives in terms of taking on Starmer and, and Labour as we, you know, lead towards an election in a couple of years' time? Well, for, for me, I mean, the, the golden thread that actually has run through all of the sequence of, 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 of Conservative government has been uh, jobs and the economy. And, uh, you know, that, that was personally a huge priority for me in the, the role that I was, you know, very uh, honoured to be able to play for a, a short while. And, and I think continues to be for actually all, all colleagues in the Conservative team. And so therefore, what, I, what I'm really looking for out of the autumn statement is, is a way that uh, is a way that we can um, have uh, stability in the public finances, that we can uh, get debt falling, but that we can uh, continue to look towards growth, because actually that is what you know supports uh, ordinary people, creates opportunity for people, um, and, uh, and 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 that's what uh, that's what I think will will demonstrate what you can look to conservatives in government for. Yeah, I, I think the problem is that obviously that you know the kind of gamble on growth was a big part of what. Quasi Quarteng tried to do with his fiscal statement earlier in the autumn, and obviously things 
kind of backfired slightly because obviously the government was having to also spend lots of money on things like the energy. Do you think it is possible to, to tread that fine line or do you think that it is the situation we find ourselves in economically that it is going to be very difficult to chase growth at the same time as protecting the vulnerable as well? I think it is possible to to achieve this balance. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, in terms of in terms of of quasi, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Liz, uh, the, the former prime minister, had, had actually been very clear that actually overall there were things there that were trying to go too far and too fast. And I think that's, you know, that's been accounted for and explained and and apologised for. Um, but the point really then, looking forward, is that you know we've got some major challenges in the economy that were pre-existing. Uh, that may have been brought to a head recently, but actually that were absolutely underlying and that are shared globally. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, prime amongst those is inflation. Um, and I think it's actually really welcome that, you know, that Rishi uh, ha- has has made clear that that is, you know, his one of his number one, uh, number one focuses to to get a grip on inflation, because that is what then drives, you know, the, the um, anxiety and painful impacts that we see on, you know, particularly on the most vulnerable, but actually throughout society and throughout the economy so it's right that that's his focus yes i mean alan carissa i enjoyed um your description of the mini budget as uh, backfired slightly <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you know <laughs> the understatement of the uh, but um what what i think is interesting right a, a sign that next week's um autumn statement is a big moment and it's going to contain difficult decisions is the fact that this week um i'm told that Rishi has been hosting lots of tory mps in downing street yeah. i know an mp who was there last night um, I know a former cabinet minister who's there the night before. I'm not sure, Chloe, if you've been invited or indeed if you've gone along for a, for a drink. But um, to me, that's a sign that Downing Street is rolling the pitch. Yeah, is you know is is you know probably briefing these MPs on a on a on the flavour of what's to come because it isn't going to be the most feel good. Um, no, I mean, come by our Jeremy Hunt's talking about difficult decisions. Yeah, there's, 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 there's going to be stuff in there which. Um, it's going to be tough to swallow for a lot of Tory MPs. And I think that's certainly a reason why the Prime Minister has been engaging in all of this um, outreach this week. Have you been there, Chloe, this week, Downing Street? Uh, well, I, w- I was certainly invited uh, and I would have been delighted to go, but I, I can confess that actually it was my wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Uh, one, of, one of the advantages of uh, being fired from Cabinet is you get to spend more time with your family. <laughs> and so I thought... I thought I'd better do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you think that there's, as, as Adam says, like the sort of um, rolling of the pitch, we go back to, again, the trust and quartet kind of area. There was criticism that perhaps MPs hadn't been properly prepared for it and it was difficult for them to to, to go out and discuss it. And do you think that, that Sunak maybe has understood that and, and therefore I think also as well, perhaps the party is is perhaps more willing to go along with this stuff because they know how important it is that this, this goes right. Because if this goes wrong, then there really is no coming back for it, I suppose. I think Conservative colleagues are absolutely dedicated to doing the right thing for their constituents. And, and, and it is clear, absolutely clear that what everybody needs here is economic stability in order to then be able to build you know, people's lives and livelihoods upon. And that is uh, that is what I know uh, Rishi and, and, and Jeremy Hunt will be uh, seeking to achieve uh, on Thursday. As we've all said, that you know they have a, it's some extremely tough decisions ahead of them, which they will be looking to bring together uh, in a package that that really rises to these global challenges. I mean, again, it's really worth emphasizing. Actually, you know, most countries around the world are facing 
uh, are facing challenges just like this. You know, you look at um, interest rates and of course there's been moves both in, for example, Europe and in uh, America that are, you know, broadly similar to what we're having to do here, excuse me, to what the bank is doing here. Uh, and then in terms of inflation, you know, again, the challenges are the same um, uh, across across many countries. Do you think that maybe there's, think maybe there's been a problem that, that obviously there's double digit inflation in lots of places and interest rates are going to have to go up. Do you think there's been a problem maybe then that the Conservatives have allowed themselves to be blamed for that in essentially do you think there should have been a better job in explaining that this is this is an issue that everyone's facing that actually that people's mortgages were going to have to go up regardless the era of cheap money is perhaps kind of over and it was a, it's global pressures that have led to it but it does feel as though now especially labor the way trying to paint it in this way that people's mortgages are going to go up as a result of conservative policies and actually that it's not necessarily the government's fault or entire fault behind that but perhaps are going to be blamed for it as we go forward well i mean i think i think the labor party is is simply wrong and misguided to paint it that way it's just it's just not the case it's it you know these are global issues i mean you you know a really emblematic reason for that that i think most people can under, you know see and, and understand really clearly is is that it's putin's you know invasion in ukraine i mean the you know that has had the key impact on um uh commodity prices and and therefore you know, from there through the rest of the economy. Um, but it's also the case, I mean, and, and again, as as Rishi has himself reflected, that, you know, we have to be able to, to think about what was um, spent during the, the COVID pandemic, and we have to be able to, to account for that. You know, this is what responsible governments have to do, um, and, uh, you know, and, and I'm fully behind him in, in doing so. Do you think, Adam, that, you know, the what's kind of the key block you know, in stopping this kind of happening? And do you think there is a chance that things will get, get right? Or do you think that there's a real push to try and get things sorted out before we hit that kind of big NI, uh, the big kind of Good Friday anniversary mm. next year? Look, we've been here so many times before that I can, al- <laughs> I can almost feel the PTSD coming on as I'm saying <laughs> this. But um, when you speak to people on the UK and the EU side, they both say the mood is really good. It's in the best place it's been in for quite some time. Um, actually, it's worth saying Rishi Sunak today, Thursday, is at the British Irish Council Summit. Yeah. And he's the first PM to do this since Gordon Brown in 2007. Um, he's due to meet with his Irish counterparts, with the leaders of devolved nations today. Um, and it sounds like um, this is very sort of technical, but um, a big part of his disagreement over the protocol this is, is the EU claims that the UK hasn't given the EU sufficient access to all the data which it uses to track movements from GB to NI. It sounds like the EU now feels like it has got the data it needs to take a look kind of under the bonnet and to see how it's all working. Um, If the EU is happy with that, that could potentially unlock an agreement on customs, which is a big part of this impasse. It sounds like things are moving. Yeah. It sounds like... I've heard late this year, early next, we could have finally have an agreement on this, which obviously, since its implementation early 2020, has really bedeviled relations between the EU and the UK. And then the question becomes, if there is a revised protocol, if there is a deal, does the DUP feel it's acceptable? Do they feel that it's enough for them to get back into power sharing? If it does, if Geoffrey Donaldson and his colleagues feels that way, then hopefully... We have the executive back up and running in time for spring and that 25th anniversary of the peace deal and Biden's visit clearly will be a really fantastic celebratory 
moment, if the DUP still isn't happy and still refuses to get into government, then we are in a bit of a predicament, to yeah. put it lightly. We are in, we're in, we are going to be in a constitutional crisis. So I think the, the, the weeks leading up to Christmas are going to be really important, I think. Um, and what I would say with that is that going back to Sunak's appearance today at the, um, the summit, I think there is a feeling that this government, and indeed the trust government, to be honest, took real steps to improve relations with the EU. Yeah. And um, that, that really, I remember when we were at Conservative Conference, oh God, I feel like a long time ago, in, in Birmingham, speaking to EU representatives who were there, they were all talking about this improved mood. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chloe, have you, have, you, have you felt a sense of that? I know that obviously Steve Baker as Northern Ireland Minister and Heaton Harris as Northern Ireland Secretary have done got a lot of out- outreach work. Do you, do you get a sense that the mood music is a bit better and do you think there is a chance to kind of fix some of these problems as we go into the winter? Yes, I certainly hope there is. And, and that is the way to go about doing it. I mean, I commend them for, for that work. I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it remains just a, a, a massive disappointment that, that the parties in Northern Ireland have not been able to uh, agree yet and to be able to you know to form government because because actually Northern Ireland politicians ought to be making decisions for Northern Ireland that's the you know that's the key principle here um, and so I'm I'm very much looking forward to to you know more of those kind of steps being taken to be able to allow that. Mm. And, and Chloe you, you'll be well aware of this from your time working on, on the brief but not only does this mean that the people of Northern Ireland are without politicians yeah. in Northern Ireland making decisions for them but it's left an almighty financial black hole uh, in in instalment, they've still got to deliver public services, right? They've still got to deliver things that people need, which is leading to a, a financial mess. And Heaton Harris, when he was up in the Commons yesterday, said that as part of measures he'd be taking forward to address his financial situation, he'd be cutting the salaries of MLAs, who, for those who don't know, are essentially Northern Ireland's equivalent of MPs, by 27.5% which is obviously a pretty significant yeah. chunk of your salary to lose. But it, it, it's again, it's another indication of how serious the situation is um, over there. Yeah, just just one final thing before, before, before we wrap up. Um, you know, Northern Ireland, we talked about the autumn statement. There's an awful lot in Rishi Sunak's intro. You've, as you say, you were minister in various departments for a long, long time. You're out of, out of cabinet now. You know, how do you assess kind of what his intray is like and, and what do you think you want to see from him and, and what do you think have you seen in him as a as a person working with him in government what have you seen that makes you think that he's going to be able to do so uh into this kind of these difficult periods that he's going into well I, I mean i have every you know i have every good wish for for what what he will be able to achieve now and i and i you know i've seen him able to be uh diligent compassionate um you know creative in what he does in government and i think that's really important. I mean, I think, you know, in addition to the major issues we've spoken about today, you know, there's an element of kind of getting back to some basics here, which is people are looking to see success in terms of there being jobs available, there being great education for your kids, there being uh, the health service there when you need it, there being streets safer from crime. And all of those things, of course, are things that we uh, focused on in our manifesto in 2019. And, and actually, I would say also all those things are things where you've seen progress. I mean, for example, in terms of crime, there are you know more police officers on the streets of my constituency than there were um, you know three years ago. And that's, that's a token of progress. Um, so I want to see him continuing to make progress on all those points. 
I think constituents in particular are looking for uh, the backlogs in the NHS to be busted. Um, dentistry and uh, GPs are, I think, probably top of my constituency mailbag uh, at the moment. And so all those things together are what are in the Prime Minister's in trade. Uh, you know, that, that job has clearly uh, challenged quite a few people uh, recently. Um, but um, I think as you touched on yourselves earlier on, actually, there is an importance now in having a bit less of the excitement, a bit less of dare I say it, journalists running around on the kind of addiction of turmoil, you know. Um, (laughs) Am I allowed allowed to gently pick on you for that? Um, uh, that But but in all seriousness, there's there's a massive job to do here. We need to focus on that. Yeah. Uh, Just you mentioned just a final, final word. You mentioned, uh, you know, all MPs working for their constituents. Just a final word on Matt Hancock in the jungle. Did you watch him on his last night? Well, uh, no. I mean, as aforementioned, it was my wedding anniversary. I was doing something much better. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks to my colleague Adam Payne and our brilliant guest Chloe Smith. Our editor today was Laura Silver. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.